0: If you want to turn, please, to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We turn the corner on Philippians 1 to Philippians 2. Some of the most exciting uh, statements that we have in the entire corpus of Paul's writing. It's scary when you start reading Philippians 2. Because it gets very... Convicting. We've been convicted ever since Philippians 121, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if, if you really process what Paul is saying there and compare your life to Paul when he says that and how your life is going day to day, then you'll be living a constant life of of sanctified conviction. This is how we're supposed to be. And the details of life aren't supposed to take over and the people that are so important to us aren't as important as God. And if they become more important, then we've lost our first love. And for me to live as Christ and die as gain is the context for everything Paul is going to say, including the great pattern that we would be like the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2. You have in Philippians 2 what they call the great Christ hymn, which is in verses 6 through 11, where you have a pattern presented for your Life And it's an afforsiori argument, for stronger reason argument. What that means is that if, if Jesus being God would humble himself to the Father's will to the point of death, then you, not being God, but being made in God's image, then you, you certainly can. If Jesus did it, and he's the, he's the pattern for us, then we should do it. But the differential is a great differential, as we'll talk about today. And so the whole of Paul's writing is about a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. The effect of Paul's writing and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, is a closer relationship and dependency upon the person of Christ, a focus and an occupation. And that's why Paul will say in verse 27 of chapter 1, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit." with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. This isn't just a a historical occasion where you have this one church that got it right, and so that's for them. They're the model for all of us that we should be like the Philippians. We should be on mission. And they are with one mind to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. I want to remind you that unity is not static. It isn't just something that we kind of have, and we're just kind of sitting there unified. It doesn't work. You're too different. We focus in on ourselves. The differences start to stink to us, and so we separate. That's what happens when you're static. When you have work to do and you have a common mission, you have to carry the sofa and you need another person to help you. Now, the differences don't matter so much because the mission has us pulling together. And I think that's very important uh, in this world we live in, especially with the, the circumstances we have, we are wealthy compared to all peoples in the world today and in world history. Lower class, uh, lower marginal income, poverty level is better than the kings of antiquity in our country's experience. And so trying to understand how to live in this affluence with what Paul is saying, you have to take into account our little troubles, we call them first world problems. These people were much more concerned about whether they were gonna eat each day than we probably ever have been. And sometimes I think, um, and with affluence comes the the luxury of not connecting with others because they're different. And I don't wanna put up with that, it's inconvenient. But I want, you to, I want to remind you, if you have work to do and it requires a team to do it, you'll either not do the work or you'll get the team together. That's how it is. And that's what Paul's doing as he encourages the Philippians. Now, the Philippians are a church getting it right, like Preston City Bible Church. They're a church that understands the work. They prioritize the work. They support the work. They're on mission in their own lives, and they're looking for opportunities to do it together. This is the church in Philippi, and this is the church in Preston. Now, what about... <clears throat> problems does this mean they don't have problems in the church does this mean that everybody's just so spiritually mature and so consistent with the Lord that you don't have like serious problems there are there's a whole paragraph of Philippians committed to a silly squabble between women and the church in Philippi that's horrible but that's what's going on and it just distra- and Paul says it's distracting from the work there are two work women in the gospel but they're they're distracting from the mission because they've got a Donnybrook, they've got a problem between each other, some sort of personal uh, spat. And Paul says it needs to be, stop it. It's it's counterproductive. If you focus on the mission, in every case, my point is it it actually solves some of our problems because it makes them irrelevant. Who cares about these differences that seem so important because of how we feel? We've got work to do, and then we get on it. Now, I don't say that in order to distract from the, the, the doctrine of Scripture or the necessity for the things that we're responsible to have the same. We don't say, well, we have a mission, so uh, anyone is fit for the mission. Not everyone is fit for the mission, and we should all be fit for the mission, and that's, that's a different con- consideration. But what I'm saying is the differences and the troubles and the struggles that happen when you get people together to try to accomplish something diminish as you focus on the work that you have to do and so Paul says in no way be alarmed by your opponents in verse 28 which is a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you and that too from God for to you it's been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake you don't just get to be part of the body of Christ you get to suffer For the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's two or three places in Paul's letters where he talks about suffering for the sake of Jesus and it being a direct connection to the sufferings of Christ. That joining his pattern will mean it will hurt, but that hurt will draw great blessing eternally, great reward. We read it this morning as we started in Romans 8, verse 16 that we are fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified together with him. Now, this is your context to launch into Philippians chapter 2. As we look at verse 1, we have the next flow, the next paragraph of thought, where Paul is commanding them to complete his joy i am very sensitive to the commands of scripture i have seen up close the idea that you don't really have to obey god because of grace so that grace cancels the need for obedience and it becomes this antinomian autonomous wreck we have to obey because of the grace of god We're equipped by God's grace to do things that he wants us to do. And just as the the Lord Jesus obeyed his Father, you and I, in the power of the Spirit of God, will also obey our Father. So Paul says, complete my joy by saying, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, paraklesis, the word Paul uses for encouragement, it can mean several things. It's translated several ways in the New Testament but it means the effect of the word of God in the heart of the believer. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the mentoring of the spirit of God through the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that relationship is in Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, very... Hebrew thing to do here, a very Jewish-minded, psalmic kind of thing to do. He has encouragement and now consolation. And the idea of consoling is a good translation for what's happening here, that love brings about a feeling of contentment, of peace, any consolation of love. If there's any fellowship of spirit. Now, my Bible, I believe, puts that in capital S, the capital S, Spirit, any fellowship of the Spirit, it is not articular. There is no the, at least in the um, in the majority of manuscripts. I didn't look at the the critical on this one, but um, I think it's probably talking about the Spirit that that we keep hearing about. Paul saying a Spirit of revelation, Spirit of wisdom. He's talking about this combined view that we have this same soul like-mindedness thing that's being built as we enjoy the word together with all the differences that you have and all the the hang-ups that you personally have the people closest to you they bounce against these hang-ups that you've got and they they're kind of off-putting and you don't bring those to church thank you you don't you don't let you know most of your people see those hang-ups, but when you work together and you deal with each other closely, they start to become ma- evident and they are what they are. We're broken people. We have our limitations, but this common ground that gets established because of the word of God, it's, it's a miracle. It's a work of God to bring people who are broken, selfish, sinful together in the Lord Jesus. If there's any fellowship of spirit, if there's any affection and compassion. These are all if and it's true kind of things to say, if there is any of this benefit. Now, these are this is a great portrait of the body of Christ working together. That's what it's supposed to look like. The word affection is our, our word we've had where Paul talks about his desire to be with the um, Philippians in chapter one, the splant known. Uh, the literal translation of that would be Um, intestines and that's why uh, older translations may say bowels or this is a good word for this it's talking about your feelings it's talking about the, the, the feelings that you have and it's hard to get your mind, it's hard, it's hard to grasp that concept of feeling versus thought. But if I put the two words up there in contrast, thinking and feeling, I think it's, that, that's where it becomes evident. Okay, okay, we're talking about what I believe, what I'm committed to, what I, what, what I cognitively assent to, and then how I feel in the moment about whatever. And those are two different things, but they're related things. And so affection and compassion, the the feeling side of the work of, the, of the, the gospel ministry as we're yoked together. If there's any of these things together, then make my joy complete. He says, in a, I didn't, sorry, I didn't put it in red. It's a command, complete my joy. Ra'o to make something full, fulfill. It's a summary command for which the Philippians are now responsible and you can say, well, okay, their response but it is it's paul saying this is a personal relationship and this is what makes me rejoice again i i find conviction in philippians perhaps more than anywhere else because paul says what makes him rejoice is their spiritual success is their work together is their union in christ that's what makes him rejoice That joy is completely foreign to the lifestyle of today's typical American teen or young adult. Joy, what's that? We're going to go have fun. May learn to get some work done and find fun in that. But uh, what makes Paul rejoice is the question. That you think the same thing. The first thing that makes him rejoice is thinking He just talked about if there are any affections and compassion, and that's feeling. But he's going to now say thinking, and he does both throughout Philippians. And I believe the relationship between joy and thinking God's thoughts is cause and effect. Not that we rejoice so that we then think God's thoughts, but that we think God's thoughts and then, as a consequence, we rejoice. It's cause and effect. And here's the thing that happens. Paul's in chains. He's got... You know, eye problems, probably at this point in his life, back problems, probably joint problems. He's not probably the guy that gets up in the morning and says, oh, this feels great. Right. He's got a lot of mileage on him at this point. He's probably not the guy that that feels great in the moment just because, oh, it's so great to be imprisoned by the Romans. He's Jewish. He's very Jewish. He's the the, the Hebrew of the Hebrews. They're not the most popular people among the Romans. It's not a great social arrangement for him to be chained either to a Roman soldier or on house arrest in Rome with Praetorian guard uh, watching him constantly. It's not a great life experience. He's not at camp. But this is the letter of a rejoicing. You guys rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice. It is the thinking of the thoughts of God. It is the reflection on our so great salvation, which the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect your so great salvation. It is the recalling to mind these things. So I have hope that brings about the joy Paul talks about. So as he thinks about what are we doing? What, what is my life about? Oh, it's a, I'm an apostle, which means I'm equipping the church to, as it gets started to, to multiply, to, to replicate and to make disciples. And so Paul thinks about his job, he does his job, and in the success of that work that God has committed to him, there is joy. That's where the that's where the joy is. Can you have this joy Paul has? You can. But not unless you do what Paul did, which is to say, what is my job? What power will I do it in? Choose to go do it and then See the results where Paul says, this causes me to rejoice. That you, froneo, that you think the same thing. Froneo is a, a star that's going to keep showing up in the passage. Froneta here, that is the subjunctive. It's the, the, the so that, it's the purpose of, of why, of what will, I'm uh, not the purpose, but the the thing that will make him rejoice, that they froneo, ta, ta ata, for Nasa, for Nata, that they will think the same thing, the same thing together, that they'll be of one mind. And so I think that's what my Bible translates it in verse two, that you'll, by being of the same mind. Now I translate that for Americans to think the same thing, which is synonymous in English, but think the same thing is a little more active. Being of the same mind could be passive, but this is an active idea that you're, you're actually engaging that brain for God's purposes it's not just your hands it's your thinking and that will cause Paul to rejoice if they think the same thing having the same love he keeps saying the same it's a Greek idiom using autos the uh, what's it the uh, predicative use of autos to to be the same the identical use of autos to having the same love, together sold. I know that's a bad we don't have that in English, but soon is the word for with or together, and sukos is the soul. And so this word, sum sukoi, means together, so the souls are together. And so he just keeps throwing synonyms for how you get Christian unity. It isn't in the absence of thought. I've got a dear brother that wants to say the problem with the church is doctrine, and get away from doctrine and just go for Jesus but that's doctrine to say that that's a form of doctrine. That's a teaching. So basically just, it's a mystical approach to the Christian life. Well, not what I read in Paul. They're supposed to think the same thing. That'd be doctrine. They're supposed to have the same love and that's not doctrine. That's your conviction and your commitment. And it's the love of God. And it's the love God puts in you for him and for others. And it's the consequence, it should be the consequence of sound doctrine. Now, let me ask you a question. In the Bible, do you know of an example where where you have people that are sound in doctrine, but not in love? Where there is a distinction between sound doctrine, they have the right convictions, but not the right love. Does that bring a bell for anyone? Sounds crazy, right? I mean, this problem does exist in the Bible and has been a cause for some to say, well, doctrine's the problem. It's not the problem. It's not believing it in the moment and living it out in the moment. It's inconsistency with our doctrine. That's the problem. We don't know what love is, or we haven't paid close attention, or we slip back into what the world says about it. We forget that loving others is about the gospel. It's about a relationship with God. There's nothing greater. There's nothing... (laughs) Okay, so the person is on a train headed as fast as three hundred and sixty five days per year, however fast the earth is spinning around the sun, right? They're on a train running off the rails into the lake of fire. That's how the people around us are. That's what it is. That's what's true about mankind. And we're wondering should I should I, you know, what what should I do to, to demonstrate God's love? Whatever it is, it's the gospel, whatever it is, it's, it's the thing that stops th- this horrible thing from happening because everything else is less important, infinitely less important than their eternal destiny. So we forget what love is. We think love is affection. We think love is feelings or something and we forget because we're not thinking. But I think the problem of doctrine is inconsistent living it out. Having the same love, the, the place, that I'm thinking of where they've got solid doctrine, but they don't have their first love, is the church of Ephesus in Revelation three. You know, the church that you wanna be like in the book of Revelation chapters two and three, where Jesus has his seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. You wanna be Philadelphia, you don't wanna be Ephesus. They're sound in doctrine and he commends them for that, but this I have against you, you've lost your first love. What is your first love? Ponder that a little bit. It's God. It's, it's Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, summarizes the Mosaic law and therefore the Old Testament. And therefore it's the building block to get us where we are today. Yes, we love the Lord our God. And so um, let me just illustrate the same love that brings about Christian unity, that builds the net, that our hearts are knit together in love so that we're unified together so that we can catch, you know, some for the Lord as it were. Like we can go fishing and he can use us as a net to cast and, and draw some of these poor New London County fish. 3% of New London County, the last stat I heard, believes the Bible is inspired and therefore inerrant. It believes the Bible is the word of God, 3%. If you ask people, of the Latter-day Saints or of the Jehovah's Witnesses, I think they'll say they believe that. So we've got to keep those numbers in mind when we're talking about it believe the Bible is God's word. 3% of this, the shy or this quiet corner. All right. Let's do a little experiment on love. If I'm thinking about where that 3% or that 97% is headed generally. I mean, you don't have to believe in the the inspiration of scripture to be saved. That's not the gospel. But you have to believe in the scriptures and and do them in order to walk with the Lord. And you have to believe part of it uh, to be saved since it's the gospel. What stops us from being together, from uniting and doing the work. It's in the moment, we're not consistent in our consideration of what love looks like. What does love look like for one another? You want what God wants for the other, right? That's love. You want God's will, God's best for the other person. And so you can't be in competition with people that you're loving I don't mean playful fun sports I mean trying to be better than them you, you can't because your idea would be promoting them advancing them without regard to your own advance you want you want each other to be maximized in your spiritual gift so that you're maximally useful in the mission and the stronger you are in your giftedness, the stronger the team is in its effectiveness. That's the idea. Spiritual maturity is something we're not in competition about. It's something we're promoting and advancing for each other. But we lose sight of this with things like competition. We start looking for distinctions. We like, we like to try to make distinctions that we shouldn't be making, like in 1 Corinthians chapter one and three, where they're distinguishing who they listen to as the the way to determine uh, what, what kind of Christian they are. And so this problem of the same love actually goes hand in hand with this thinking the same thing. And I think one should produce the other. And so when you have sound doctrine, but you're not living it, I think the problem is that you're not really believing it. So how should we relate to each other? We should love one another for God's sake. The last thing I wanna say about this is if you love God first, if you adopt a love for God as your first priority, right? Me and God, nobody else, just get all the other people, whether they're distractions or encouragements or whatever, just disregard everything else and start with God. It's hard to do for some people. They get so hung up on the pastor or on the, the whatever, the, the, whoever has brought them along, it's, it's God with that person. but. At some point, you're going to have to say, actually, my relationship as a son or a daughter is to my father through his son and the power of his spirit. I'm, I'm relating to God. Now, start with God and then start thinking about all the other people. Because you started with God. Well, you can't. If you're gonna love God, you cannot be opposed to your Christian brothers and sisters. If you're loving God in the moment, you can't seek their their ill, you can't be, be other than promoting them because you love your father. And that's your father's kid and you love your dad and that's part of the relationship. So you see differences, there are personality differences, their experience differences, there are all these differences you see the plank that are sticking out of each other's eyes and you're you you do not see your own but you see the other person's and but that's your dad's kid and so we make allowances it's called christian love and we don't count a wrong suffered these kinds of things if you have this christian love then you're fulfilling the commandment of the lord jesus christ and welcome to the great commission that you keep teach them to keep all that i've commanded you a new commandment i give you that you love one another just as i've loved you Jesus says in John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. He also says that he has loved his father and kept his commandments. Love for the authority is obedience. So we're having the same love, we're together sold and we're thinking the one. So he starts, it's a thinking sandwich of the things that Paul is listing of things that will make him rejoice. If they're thinking the same thing and they're thinking the one thing possibly thinking as one person, one spirit, as it were, not one person, but all unified. But it's it's the one, thinking the one, I think, or that's probably a better translation. So they're thinking the same thing, they're thinking the one thing, but having the same love and together sold. And I'm not saying S-O-L-D if you're listening and not seeing the screen, it's S-O-U-L-E-D. Your souls are together, united. Now. If you adopt a theology that says Christianity can just be me and God, then you're never going to um, be able to reconcile what Paul does with what his mission is. And what's interesting is people that do this try to really focus on the letters of Paul. That's crazy. Now, Paul doesn't say your concern for other people determines your view of self. Paul doesn't say that the way people think of you will give you your impression of you. Paul doesn't say that people become more important to you than God. And it's quite the contrary. That would be idolatry. Paul says you go to God and so concern yourself on his account for one another. And that does solve all the problems. Problems with people are problems because of these considerations here in our horizontal situation. But when you go to God, when you think of him, when you are on mission with what he wants and his power, these horizontal issues don't really matter. Sunday morning is a great time to think about these things in kind of a sterile environment. You're not in the middle of a dispute, right? But just try to spend a little time working together with people whose personalities are different your communication patterns are different. Your hang-ups are different. You're hypersensitive. She's not whatever it is. Hypersensitive and completely insensitive. That's not a good team in the flesh, but in the spirit, it works fine. Of course, no one's hypersensitive and no one's insensitive. Everyone's just comfortable in what they are. <laughs> but just think of the workplace. The reason what joins everyone together at the workplace isn't their personalities is, Oh, this is such a great thing to come here and volunteer in the workplace. You go and you deal with those people because you're going to get paid. And that's how you make the living. It's got to put up with it and be professional. Well, let's say that there's something better than getting paid. There's the mission and glorification of God. And there's the love of this, there's the love of God and the power of the spirit. And so this Christian unity, this thing that makes the net that God can catch fish with this is Paul's concern. Now, now Paul's not talking to Corinthians here. He wants them to be unified. This is this is finishing stuff. This is this is mature Christians that are on mission that are that get the work and are 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 in the, the harness with the Lord for his work. This is the this is how you advance them as you say, you need to be more unified. Now Don't read ahead because I'm gonna quiz you again to try to get you to think, I see you reading ahead. What character quality would I have to have to disregard my hangups and your hangups for us to get along and work despite the sins that may here and there kind of bubble up to the surface and we have to just disregard, don't count a wrong suffered. What would I have to do about me what would you have to do about you for us to work together through, through all the circumstances, through all the hardships, through everything that, you know, the, the, the person being tested reaches that point where they just, just choose to give in to anger and you see that. And there, you see their weaknesses, their feet of clay show up and all of a sudden, oh no, that's not how we like to, to think about church people. I'm talking about when we're working together, not on Sunday morning. You know, take off our, Our our mask I don't mean the COVID mask. I mean the church mask. And we actually work together and you deal with people as they are, where, where it's real, you know. What would have to be true about me and you for this thing to work together despite my brokenness, your brokenness, our sinfulness? What would have to be true? What character quality would God have to be building in me? Yeah, I would have to disregard self and be concerned for God and therefore for you without thinking of myself, which is... Christian humility so isn't it interesting that in telling you I want unity and that will make my joy complete and you thinking the same thing and having the same love that they then goes to the ultimate Christian ethos the ultimate ethos of the Christian life is humility a few years ago I wrote a booklet for the kids at Camp Rete on humility and um, that's always a risky thing to do to write on humility and um I was trying to sort of summarize what the New Testament teaches, and I went to places like Romans 12 and here in Philippians two. And um, it came out, this is very humiliating actually, that uh, when I gave my page on the definition, even the teachers are like, wow, what are you saying with these complex clauses? What does this mean? And I said, well, it's just on, it's one sentence. It tells you what humility is. And uh, in in all humility, I can't remember what I wrote uh, as what humility is. But I know what I think it is. Actually, it's it's a very many-faceted thing. And there's false humility and true humility. And there's a right approach and a wrong approach like everything in life. You can be so self-important in your humility that you're actually arrogant about it. People that are trying to lead with humility as their calling card, I think often are very arrogant about their great humility. And um, it's one of these things that you aspire to, but never claim. I've arrived at humility. Oh, well, you just lost it. You know, you never claim to be humble, but you always aspire to it. And you, with fear and trembling before God, I mean, I'm not saying give up. I'm saying, hold yourself accountable to God, to be humble before him, but you never claim I have arrived at humility. Here's what I think you get in places, for example, Romans chapter 12. I think humility and arrogance as concepts, as theological concepts, are sort of like polar opposites. I think they're the opposite concept. Paul says in Romans 12, therefore, I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, acceptable to God, which is, is your spiritual service of worship. I think that's the active, like positive side of what humility is, is it humbles itself. You just say, God, you're God and I'm not. So you establish the creature creator distinction that he's God and you're not. And so he is the one driving the, the, the ship. He's the boss. He's the one who has the right to decide and I have the privilege of wanting what he wants. And that's what I think ultimately Christian humility looks like is wanting what God wants as Jesus demonstrated it. And then you have, after being told to make yourself a living and holy sacrifice to God, he then says that's the positive side of humility, the negative side. This is what will take you off the track. Do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So humility is a thought game. It's a thought. I don't feel real humble all of a sudden. It's thinking. It's a a thinking correctly about self and God and life. It's feeling in truth. By the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, that's to reason through and approve and to discern what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So if I'm not insisting on having my way, but I'm saying, God, have your way, and I'm a living and holy sacrifice to God, and I'm being renovated and submitting myself to God's word instead of what I wanted to say, but let God have his way, then that makes me capable of discernment. It's not arrogant to be discerning. It's humble because I'm telling God's truth. I'm telling the truth about whatever the situation is. And it's not what I want, it's what God wants. And that's, that's this mindset. You see how this is dynamic in Romans chapter 12. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, now here's the arrogant side, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So that, not to think more highly of himself, but also not to say, well, I can't reason because I'm stuck in myself and I'll always be subjective. No, in God's grace, as you humble yourself before him with the power of his word, transforming your character, you can think God's thoughts. You have to get you out of the picture and your preferences and your thing, you have to get you away and let God say what he wants to say. All those little ch- childish you know, first semester of Greek, but I thought it's my favorite thing. And sitting in Greek class, taking night school with my brother-in-law Tuesdays and Thursdays at Dallas Seminary in 2004, in the spring of 2000 or summer of 2000, fall of 2004, there we are. It's October. We're you know, it's we've worked all day, and now I'm in Greek class for you know the fun dessert of the day at 5 p.m. Right, which is great because there's traffic. Dallas traffic is is, is horrible it's i mean it's it's good for at least 10 or 15 blood pressure points for me it's just so nice to live here in the shire but but you're sitting there in class thinking about how you're not in traffic which is so nice because you'd be sitting out in traffic you're sitting in class and the professor says something about autos the ver the um the pronoun that's he in in greek it's very important pronoun it does a lot of things and he says, "Well, th- this use is the is the identical use. You say the same, and this use is the attributive use, and say the uh, the, the vary or something." And then and then someone chimes up, who doesn't know anything about Greek, and says, "But I thought, <laughs> who cares what you thought? It's Greek. It's been this way for thousands of years. But you thought, well, you thought wrong. Now, of course." I'm thinking that (laughs) me and my other army buddy brother-in-law were like (laughs) you thought wrong but it's funny the professor never did that he just blinked and said well but in this case this is what it is and he just never took the bait but I thought and uh meanwhile we're learning about the predicative and Attributive use of autos and um, despite distractions and and arrogance in myself, well, I didn't think that because I knew enough to listen to what the teacher said. So now I'm arrogant. If you think about it, ha ha, I didn't think, there I am, right? Always pull it back on yourself, right? You see somebody being arrogant and foolish, if you indulge in that thought too much, there you are, You're, you're right there with them. Nevertheless. Humility is our standard. It is our pattern in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is where the goods are. It's where the joy is. It's where the peace resides. And your sin nature tells you otherwise. Your flesh tells you, no, glorify self, magnify self, exalt self, promote self. And the word of God says, humble yourself before God and make yourself a living and holy sacrifice to him. And you can't do both. You have to pick one of those two lifestyles. You cannot self-promote in humility before God. You can't do it. You have to be thinking and thinking and thinking and do the math. Think it through. Think about where this goes. There are eternal consequences to, your, to our attitude. So he says, having said that your, his joy will be complete in their unity of thinking and so love. He says, doing nothing. Doing is elliptical because it just says nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory. This is his introduction into humility by starting with the negative. This is what you don't want to do. You don't want to do anything. The word nothing. I looked it up in Greek. It means nothing. Nothing according to eratheia or Kenodoxia. These two words are synonyms and they're interesting synonyms. The first one, Eretheia, could either mean strife, like we're causing a, a dispute because of of jealousy and, and inordinate competition, or it just means selfish ambition without there being a problem between two people. But either way, it's motivated by selfish ambition. It's the goal of self-advancement. We're wired with this. People that are not uh, particularly ambitious, they still struggle. We all do with this. It's about me mentality. It's the flesh and it bites us in our sleep. Some days you wake up without even thinking about this, but this is, this is where you are living until you wake up to who you really are, to what your life is. And you start thinking God's thoughts about you and about him. But he says, doing nothing motivated by selfish ambition. My word motivated is a paraphrase because it doesn't, it, it's the kata is uh, mm-hmm. probably, the cause. So I use it because of, or motivated by, selfish ambition or vain glory. This is a fun word. Kenos is an adjective. Kenos, K-E-N-O-S, that means empty. And dox, dox, uh, what's the, um, the dox word here, this root, D-O-X, has verbs and nouns and adjectives and it's the piece of the word that says "duxion." That is glory. And so it's empty glory. That's the, that's the etymology of this word that's actually pretty rare in the New Testament. What is the, so I've used the King James word, vainglory, in my translation. It's vainglory. What does this mean? Think of the most accomplished person you can imagine who did it all his way or her way and, and built an empire of reputation and wealth and success. Whatever field you want to think of, think of the most uh, successful author, right? That, that made it, that beat the odds and sold gazillions of copy and is a superstar, unlike almost all authors, right? Imagine the, the person in your field, whatever your business, whatever, whatever, 20 years ago, you said, think of the richest guy. And people would have said, who's putting their names on buildings in, in New York City, right? Think of the richest, most successful person who did it for himself or herself, who did it, whatever they did, because they could because they're ambitious because Napoleon Hill said that the one secret to being successful in business is being single-minded and not letting anything distract you from your goal and you go out and get it. And that's how Edison and, and Graham Bell and all these successful people in the early industrial age did it. So all the writers after Napoleon Hill that talk about success in business. are all basically saying, you just have to want it bad enough. So they wanted it bad enough and they got it. And now they're sitting on the top of the heap and that's vainglory it really is and what i mean is it's the reasoning that we have in proverbs and ecclesiastes and in the teachings of jesus where even if you gain everything but you don't have eternal life Even if you've stored up treasures that no one can count on earth, but you haven't stored up treasures in heaven, it's worthless in the long run. And it's not very long before it starts being worthless because you only live so many decades to enjoy that here and now. And it's temporary and it's transitory and it's passing away. And we all have this tendency, some more than others perhaps, to go carving for their amassing of glory, of whatever it is, clicks, likes, friends, whatever the thing is that makes you feel like, oh, I've accomplished something by getting another another nugget. When you're doing what you're doing for you, to glorify you because that's how your sin nature is wired to do to, to work in you, that's what we're talking about. That's this empty glory. And that is not designed, that reasoning is not designed to take away ambition. It's to channel it to eternity. We're not supposed to be mediocre and lazy and unambitious we're supposed to be seeking god's glory with excellence and that's why paul writes doing nothing motivated by selfish ambition or vainglory but with humble mindedness topeno frosune this is the word fro this fro word group is where you get to think neo. And uh, for suneth, uh, minded or uh, mindset and tapenos is humility. And so they translate this compound word as humility. I think it's humble mindedness. It's specific. Now we say humility and you think about, it, well, it is in your mind. It's a mental attitude, but he emphasizes that it is a mental attitude with this word, the, the, the humble mindset. And so it's a thought I don't necessarily listen. It doesn't start with, I woke up this morning having humble feelings. I'm not just you know, having humility uh, because I just feel this way. It's that I'm thinking clearly about who I am and what I am with humble mindedness. Here's what it looks like. One another regarding is more important than yourselves. Not selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humble mindedness, one another regarding is more important than yourselves. Now, Paul is the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the study of the Christian life of Paul. What did Jesus say that sounded like this? Regarding others is more important than yourselves. He said the last will be first and the first will be last. Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be this way, to think this way and disregard your interests and be concerned for the other's interests, it takes faith. You have to believe that's what God wants for you, that God has your interests much better in hand than you ever could, that just let this go and trust him. That's the, the attitude that will result in the ability to have this humble mindedness one one another regarding as more important than yourselves. Not each of you looking out for your own interests is the order in Greek, but also each the interests of the others. The new American standard 95, they have a 2020. They just published a new American standard 2020 edition, which is cool. I've, I've been reading it, but in the 1995 edition, they say in uh, there in verse four, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That word interest is, it has to be supplied because it's just an article, the things, but this is what we're saying. You don't think of just you. I love Milton Friedman. I like to sometimes get video clips of old Milton Friedman, uh, interviews, never forget the interview with Donahue. I was never, I never saw it live. I never watched Donahue, but it's, it's YouTube gold. I mean, I'm glad there was a show called Donahue just for this interview. Now this guy was a total Marxist, in my opinion, total disaster. Donahue was, but Milton Friedman was a great apologist for capitalism. Remember him? And I remember his, I don't know where he was from, but he talked about self-interest. Self-interest is how the economy works. It's how everything works. You have to have self-interest, self-interest, self-interest. And his point was that in running an economy in a country, you can't have an administration of the interest for someone else because it's too hard to manage. And there's too much room for the grabbing of power and the oppression of people. And he said it this way, where are these angels that are going to administer this system where you're taking care of the interests of others? And what he was saying was, and I believe this, I don't know what Milton Friedman thought theologically, but he was right. We're in a fallen world of sinful people that don't live like this. That's why Paul has to tell the Christians in Philippi to think this way. This is why conservatism in my opinion is the, is the approach to the American liberal project of freedom for the individual. Liberalism, true liberalism is freedom for the individual liberty to make your own decisions about what you say, work, do, live your life, just don't infringe on others. And so conservatism tries to preserve that liberty. That's called the constitution. Now, what I'm saying is the reason I believe this is the best way in this fallen and broken world is because people are sinful. It is very cynical about humankind because we're broken and sinful and we we have power grabs and let me demonstrate every capital of every seat of government is the problem in that state with Washington DC being the par excellence problem in our country, the graft and, and horror of these people making fortunes by being paid in various ways that, that you know, Harry Reid had multiple houses Senator John McCain had multiple houses from being a senator. He has this massive wealth that he gets. How do you get all that wealth? What, how does that work? Well, that's the way it works. It's, it's corrupt. It's all corrupt, right? Because we're sinners. And so even in a government designed to reduce the effect of corruption, you get this massive corruption. And so what we're reading in Philippians is how we're supposed to relate to one another as believers. But it is not the norm of the human race, and so I believe the Milton Friedman uh, appeal to self-interest is the recognition of a fallen world and how you get a functioning economy in a fallen world that isn't purely uh, corrupted and oppressive. Nevertheless, for you, as you deal with one another, you are not supposed to be looking at you. You're supposed to be looking at the other. That's Christian love. You don't look at you, you look at the other. This works in marriage, it works in family, it works beyond the family. Once had someone say, well, see, you think that we should take care of our own country first before we concern ourselves for the other countries, but there's no place for that in Christianity. I was actually told there's no place for that in the Christian mindset because you're not looking out for the interests of others. And I thought, you know, that's a very interesting thought. And it, 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 Okay, let's think about it for a second. What does Paul say about the man who won't provide for his own family? Worse than an unbeliever. See, there are different levels of interest. There are different, I mean, you're supposed to think selflessly about your wife and kids, man. Right? We're supposed to be selfless toward one another. But dads can only, the, the dad is the only one that's the dad. And the mom's the only one that's the mom in that unit. And so... There is the household interest, right? But that doesn't mean that as a household, having concerned ourselves for one another, we don't then, as a unit, concern ourselves for those outside. So you have to, you have to temper this and think it through. <clears throat> the approach, though, is getting rid of my concern for me so that I can look to God's concern for you. And that makes me not think so much of myself as a reservoir to amass God's blessing as a conduit to deliver it, to be used by God to, to deliver his blessing. And that's why the reservoirs are empty is because we've turned off the conduit and there's nothing, there's no flow. When there's flow, I think God refills the reservoir. That's the idea. Generally, I hope that makes sense to you. Well, this is a good place for us to, to close down this morning on our approach because the next verse takes this hard st- statement from Paul and then says, look, I'm just telling you to be like Jesus. You're supposed to adopt the thinking of your Savior and He's your pattern. That's the next great idea. And in illustrating how Christians are supposed to relate to one another, which is the, the, the message through this portion of Philippians, we have the great Christology called the Christ hymn, philippians 2 5 through 11 i hope you'll get to hear it and i hope we'll get to do it let's pray father we praise you for this eternal life which we've enjoyed today by thinking your thoughts after you by knowing you better knowing your son father the only way we can be like paul is describing where we disregard self and concern ourselves for the other is that we've looked at you and seen that you have us you have us well in hand and you'll never let us go Father, this uh, to the world may look reckless, but it is really just our trusting you with what you've commanded. We know that obedience to you is empowered by your spirit. And Father, we know that pleasing you is our objective. Never let us lose sight of your grace, Father, as we seek to please you in the works that you've laid out for us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.